welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast, where we're living for preventative mental health, love and compassion. Great to have your company. I'm Caroline Heim, and today we have such a special treat for you. This is a recording of a live lecture that Dr. Heim did on anxiety. Please bear with the sound quality, which isn't as good as our normal podcast, because believe me, this is jam-packed with practical messages that you won't want to miss. What makes us anxious in society? What part of our brain reacts to anxiety? What's the difference between fear and anxiety? And then four tips to beat anxiety. At the end, Dr. Heim answers audience questions on what worry is, the connection between OCD and anxiety, and how to calm your anxiety when you get a severely negative diagnosis from your doctor. And a special treat, he plays a piano a bit along the way. Let's listen in. Uh, how to beat anxiety. The, the problem is that anxiety is here to stay. And so what I'll be looking at today is an outline of anxiety in the 21st century. Then I'll be looking at understanding anxiety. And then I will give you some tips that we can all use to beat anxiety. Now, if you consult a textbook as to what causes anxiety in our lives, you'll get an answer that says, oh, it's because of genetics and it's because of life events. And I'm here to tell you that's only a small part of the story. There is one study, what we call a seminal study that came out in 1992, that changed the way that we think. And this was a study that was very simple. It looked at children in the USA in the 1980s and it measured their anxiety level and it looked at children in the USA in the 1950s that were taken to see psychiatrists because of anxiety. And children of the 1980s are more anxious in a general household than children that were taken to see a psychiatrist in the 1950s. Now that actually means that society itself has become more and more anxious. And here's the thing, we accept that as normal. And that's really strange. So the take home message is that one thing about anxiety is that it's a side effect of the wonderful society that we have created. People in all ages are anxious. Children are far too anxious than they need to be. Young adults, well, Caroline, are your students anxious at all? My students are very, very anxious. So over the past five years, I have seen their anxiety rates just escalate tremendously. So I get disability reports and I have to uh, adjust assessments for that because of their anxiety rate. So I'd say there's probably two areas that they're most anxious in. Number one is they've got a strong fear of failure so much so that when they go to hand in essays or assignments online, they actually have, a lot of them have panic attacks. They can't actually press the button on their computer because they're so afraid of failing. The second area is they're, they're afraid of being judged. They're so afraid of being judged by their peers, by society as a whole, by the university, so, so afraid of being judged. Now, this has been recognised by universities worldwide, so what a lot of universities, or the enlightened ones have been doing, is been putting in mental health training for the lecturers to help the students with their anxiety levels. But Christian and I actually put together our own mental health program over the last three years, 
which is sort of a bit of an unprecedented event um, in universities. And we actually have been helping the students manage their anxiety um, and asking them to ask questions of us about how to manage their anxiety, because it really is a huge issue in university students worldwide. Okay, thank you very much, Caroline. And one of the main messages we give the students is that you are a human being, not a human doing. Because you can we, we all get judged for everything that we do, putting in assignments, how you give lectures, how you do your work. Everything that we do can be judged, and it is. But you can't be judged for who you are. You are a human being, just like the rest of us. Welcome to the human race. We can't judge you for being a human being. You can just be. So the more that we live from being a human being rather than a human doing, the less fear of judgment that we can have and the less fear of failure. All right, so that's young adults. Let's move on to adults in their 30s and 40s. This is the time when you've got households together. And one of the biggest fears is a fear of finances, of losing finances. Am I making enough money? Is my money secure? Are we going to get by? And this is from human beings that live in the most prosperous times there have been throughout human history, which again says that it's a side effect of the wonderful society that we have. Another uh, fear that people have is my kids. Are, are they going to do all right? And that becomes a big fear for people in those sort of years. As you grow older, people tend to think it's a fear of sickness and a fear of death. Well, actually, in our society, we live longer than we ever have. We've got a medical industry that is absolutely amazing in its ability to be able to fix things up, but it creates other fears. I don't want to be a burden on my partner, on anybody else. That becomes an amazing anxiety. I don't want to lose my independence. How do I do that? And that becomes an amazing anxiety. In fact, people who are in their older years, 70s, 80s and 90s, they've got health care that can help them, but it's such an anxiety getting to the doctor. Just having to battle society to get there is quite amazing. All right, let's try to understand anxiety. And to understand anxiety and how to keep it under control, I'm going to take you to one of my favourite places, and this is Disney movies. Uh, I'm actually a kid at heart. I love all the cartoon movies, and I've recently acquired a daughter-in-law who shares my love of uh, animated uh, films. I'm going to take you to 1992 to a Disney film called Aladdin. Wonderful. It is a story that is thousands of years old. And the story is of Aladdin who has to go to the Cave of Wonders to get this lamp. But you see, and if he gets the lamp, he gets the girl, all right? But to get into the Cave of Wonders, he's got to get past this, this tiger's head that just chomps people and spits them out and kills them. Now, Aladdin becomes our hero and we can't have him be afraid. He's got to be the courageous one that gets through it all. But he's actually very fearful. So how did Disney deal with this? The writers of Aladdin came up with an amazingly good idea. They decided, we'll give Aladdin a pet. We'll make this pet a monkey. We'll call the monkey Abu. And we can laugh at the monkey because the monkey's going to be fearful, anxious, 
and Aladdin can be courageous and tell his monkey to cool it. Just behave yourself. And what it really is is a metaphor for Aladdin getting his own anxiety under control. And it makes for a lot of fun. So the take-home message in that is all of us, we're all carrying around an extra 20 pounds of anxiety. And if we think of the anxiety as a monkey, then we start to know how to keep our own anxiety out of control. Now, a monkey, as you know, can be a lot of fun. But after a couple of days, it gets quite annoying. Okay, it's sort of like, monkey, can you just shut up? Right, so if we get to control our monkey and train our monkey, then it's like keeping our anxiety under control. And that's what Aladdin does in the movie. And that's what we have to do. Because the idea is that we'd like to relax. We'd like to have that feeling that we get when we come home, we shut the door, we take our shoes off, whatever, we flop down on the couch, we don't care what we look like, we don't care about the worries of the world, we just relax. And so music becomes that metaphor because when we've got tension in the world and then we get the feeling of resolution, you can go, ah, I'm on the couch again. I can relax. The problem with anxiety is it's in here. Whenever you meet somebody and spend a whole day with them, you may be experiencing about 1% of what that whole person is. If you live with somebody like a good friend or a spouse for decades, you're getting to know maybe 20 or 30% of that person because they cannot share with you all of those thoughts that are just going through their mind all the time. What if other people don't like me? What if other people find out that I'm uh, a fake? I hope I don't screw up my life today. I hope people don't understand what I'm really like. And I don't know about you, but I used to sit in class in high school and see 40 other kids and I thought, they're all okay. At least they act as though they're okay. I'm the person that screwed up in here. As a psychiatrist, I've come to know that all of us are receiving mass of emotions in here, and most of us can keep it together for about eight hours a day so that we can get some work done, right? But then there come the times when we just lose it and we've got to get onto that couch and relax. And here's the thing, we compare ourselves with others, but we compare our inner life with their appearances. So if you see somebody who you believe is doing well where you're not, I put it to you that it's only because you don't know them very well and you don't know what's going on inside their head and throughout their life. So the take home message is anxiety is there for everybody. Now I've got to talk about the difference between anxiety and fear. Hand up anybody who likes snakes. Oh, oh, there we go. You're getting, you're getting a few. That's good. That's good. That's good because you can learn to like snakes. But what scientists have found out is that a fear of snakes has become genetic inside us because snakes mean poison, means death if you get bitten by a snake. So around the world, there are these killer snakes and they've got these amazing names, a king cobra, a taipan, a death adder 
a boa constrictor. They all sound so amazingly dangerous. Of course, we know that the most dangerous snakes in the world are in Australia. And what do we call our snakes? Brown snake, black snake, all right? Because <laughs> we're just sort of used to the danger. And it doesn't speak the danger that these snakes actually are. Now, here's the difference between fear and anxiety, because fear is physical. It is to keep you alive. It's got to do with survival. If you see a snake that is a brown snake and you've got to walk there and you freeze, that is fear. If this morning you are afraid that you might see a snake, that is anxiety. Because one is a real situation, you are in real danger, and the other is, well, it's in here. So we as human beings have evolved a fear system to keep us alive. This fear system uh, was for snakes and saber-toothed tigers. We don't really have that many snakes and saber-toothed tigers these days. But our saber-toothed tigers are deadlines at work. Am I making enough money? Can I negotiate the uh, internet today? Right? Uh, will, my, uh, will my parents like me? Will my children like me? Am I doing the right thing by my partner? These are our modern-day saber-toothed tigers. And they are just as debilitating to us as if they were real saber-toothed tigers or snakes. So let me take you inside the brain to see how this works. I'm going to take you to one very special part of your brain called the amygdala. Now, I've worked a lot with people who have been at war and they've suffered a lot of trauma. Their amygdala has changed. Uh, and it seems to be a problem, but their amygdala has kept them alive. The amygdala is one of the most important parts of the brain that we have. It takes care of four things, each of them beginning with F. It takes care of fear to make sure that we respond to it. It takes care of fighting if we need to take care of our own rights to get forward things. It takes care of food because if we need food, it will drive you to find food really quickly. And the other F, I've just forgotten now, it's something to do with sex. Um, but it will drive you to, oh that's right, fornication, right? It will, it will drive you to find sexual expression uh, if you need that. So, but as I said, the amygdala is there to make you survive. And one thing that it does is if it gets you into a fear situation, so if you have actually been confronted by a saber-toothed tiger, it will say, you know what, I'm not letting you get into this situation again, all right? No more saber-toothed tigers for you. So, if you are a person who has somehow been shamed in public, right, that feels life-threatening. To be rejected from the human race is life-threatening. So, your amygdala says, I'm not going to let you get in that situation ever again. So, that may become a fear of being in social situations, social phobia, uh, and that becomes an anxiety that is part of your brain. Now, as a psychiatrist, I work to get over these sort of things, but it's not really easy. The thing is that we all have these saber-toothed tigers inside of us, and that anxiety somehow has become normal because it is a reaction to this wonderful society that we have built up. However, what can we do about all of this? Because what happens is the amygdala 
then talks to your hypothalamus, which talks to your pituitary gland. You don't have to remember those things, but if you've heard the words fight or flight, that's where the chemicals go to say, whoa, you have just seen a tiger. Whoa, you're being socially humiliated and you feel this rush of adrenaline coming through your body and it increases your heart rate, it increases your breathing rate, it, it gives you butterflies in your stomach, it gets all your blood to rush away from your gut to your hands and your feet, it makes you able to see all of a sudden really well just in case you've got to run away from there. And this all happens automatically, you have no control over that, you can thank your brain for that. That's what we call the fight or flight syndrome to relax, to get over anxiety, we have to go to the other side of the nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system, or what we like to call rest and digest. So I want us to pretend that we're in Mykonos and you found yourself a restaurant overlooking the Mediterranean. You're with some of your most favorite people in the world. food that is delectable, listening to music that just gets you relaxing and you go, ah, when you're in this mode, your heart rate goes down, your breathing slows down and becomes deep and meaningful. The blood, you don't need it in your hands and your feet, okay, so it goes back to your gut to digest the food. Saliva is in your mouth because you need it to taste the food. Uh, all the juices of love start flowing, which is why if you go out on a date, you usually take somebody out to dinner first because you're in rest and digest and it is that beautiful mode. Now, I said that fight and flight happens automatically. Does this happen automatically? Yes, but not quite. There is one part of that system that you have control over and that is your breath. And we're going to use your breath because you can consciously say if you're worked up and you are in fight or flight mode and really anxious, you can say, okay, okay, Christian, slow down, breathe in, breathe out. And your body gets confused. It sort of said, what, I, I thought we were upset. No, 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 we're, we're actually going to slow down and we're going to go into rest and digest. And we're going to use that to keep ourselves relaxed because there are a few alternative treatments. Alcohol. Alcohol is a big problem for people who are very anxious. Why? Because it works. It actually gets you out of anxiety. So for the next hour or so, you're going to feel much better. The trouble is that you give up a lot of your future to feel good for that hour or two, right? So there are other things other than alcohol. Um, pills, as a psychiatrist there are pills that I can prescribe people to make them feel better for let's say eight hours or a couple of days. But it's the same problem. You get to feel okay for a couple of hours but you give up some of your future for it. So what we're going to look at here is four techniques for you to be able to beat anxiety. And I've used the word beat because the B, the E, the A, and the T 
all mean something. And this is something that we can all use, and it's been proven in science, to overcome anxiety. So the principle behind it is to get away from fight and flight and to get into rest and digest. So yesterday, I played you a piece of music. And it was a piece of music by Bach. The most beautiful thing about this piece of music is that you can use it to breathe in and breathe out. Because in each bar, Bach goes from some tension to some relaxation. And he goes from tension to relaxation. So we're going to go through the whole piece and I'm going to ask you to... Okay, first of all, I'm actually going to get you all to stand up. Come on, just stand up on your feet. That's good. And just stretch, a very light stretch. Okay, because all the tension that's in your arms and your legs, we're going to go and now take your arms and just shake it out a little bit. Okay, good. And sit down again, because now I'm going to get you to use your breathing to put yourself into a relaxed state. As I said, Bach uses this piece of music to go from tension to relaxation. From tension to relaxation. And I want you to breathe in with me, in. And feel the tension in your chest. And now breathe out. And now breathe in with some tension. And breathe out and relax. And keep going with Caroline, breathe in with tension. Breathe out and relax. We breathe in with tension. And we breathe out. In. Out. In. Out. I hope you're all able to experience that. 
Now, you may not have heard all the tension in the music and the relaxation as Bach did that, but I am sure that Bach did that purposefully, to have that tension and relaxation so rhythmic and so routine through all of the piece of music. There are actually not many pieces of music that do it that consistently. I personally know of only one other one, that's by Beethoven, that does that sort of thing. Now, I played that again for you because our brains love rhythm and routine. It loves familiarity. And in a world of change, to be more relaxed and less anxious, we need to have that rhythm and routine to counter the immense amount of change that we are going through. So the thing is that if you go through the flow of society, you will find yourself washed and dragged from pillar to post. Whereas if you have a few routines every day, as I do, I do some breathing every morning, then you can find yourself more centered. So that's the B in how to beat anxiety. Breathe. Breathe in and out. And look, the internet is full of different meditations, uh, whole body relaxation, stories, whatever suits you, find and make part of your routine. Sometimes, however, anxiety gets to the stage where it becomes this energy, this anger energy. How are we going to release it? This is where we get to the E. And the E is for exercise. Whatever you can do for exercise, do it. If you are fit enough to play a sport, play a sport because you get to be with other people as well. If you are in a wheelchair, you exercise whatever muscles you can every day for that exercise. Your body gets to strut its stuff when you exercise. Uh, we used to think that when you break bones, that you needed to stay in hospital for months and months. Orthopedic surgeons now know that's ridiculous. You get people moving as soon as they can, not straight after the operation, it's different for every operation, but you get them moving because the body feels good when it moves. That's what it's supposed to do. Exercise helps you live long. I did a study of 11 chess champions of last century. Now, Chess is an amazing game. It looks like a gentlemanly game, but it isn't. It's a fight to the death every time. Every move you make could be life or death. The person inside is worrying, are they making the right move? They are calculating everybody, everything. It is intense. They have will, they have intellect, they have choices that they need to calculate. And this is bringing up their blood pressure. And what's a chess player doing? sitting there like that for hours. That's very unhealthy. And the average age of these chess champions, of when they lived to, was in their 50s. Now, we take 11 orchestral conductors of the same century. Now, they've got tension too, all right? Because they can make a complete fool of themselves if they do something wrong in their conducting. The orchestra may not sound that right, they may get a few cues wrong. Are they going to interpret this well? There's a lot of pressure in a performance. But what are conductors doing? During a performance, they're doing this all the time. Okay? When they rehearse, they're doing this all the time. When they're doing their private practice, they do this all the time. Their arms are going all the time. 
Conductors live into their 80s, 90s and beyond and the sole reason is that any anxiety that they have gets transferred into exercise straight away on a daily basis. We live in a, a society where a lot of us do jobs where we're sitting all day long, just like the chess players. And we've got worrying thoughts going through our minds, just like the chess players. In that context, get out and walk, go to the gym, play a sport, whatever you can do, but the E in how to beat anxiety is exercise. So we get to the A. The A has to do with awareness in your mind. Because it was a Greek philosopher of about 150 AD that gave us the key, the key way to think that underlies actually all of modern psychotherapy. His name was Epictetus and he said, look, there are some things that you can change in the world and there are a lot of things that you can't. If you know the difference and focus on the things that you can change and accept the things that you can't, you'll be a lot better in your head. Now, he was a slave of Nero. He didn't get his freedom until he was in his 60s. And he lived this philosophy and was able to remain content in any situation he found himself in. So the A is for awareness to know if you need to adapt or accept. Because it's all right to talk about the weather, but if you get upset because it's raining today, you're going to remain upset and there's nothing that you can do about it. Oh, there is something you can do about it. You can adapt. You can say, well, we'll need an umbrella today, right? Or if you get upset because somebody else doesn't like you and you have done all that you can to be in good relationship with them, well, you've done all that you can. That becomes a situation that you need to accept rather than beating your head against a brick wall. So that becomes a key to be aware of what's inside your head so that you can decide whether you need to adapt or change something or accept. And the harder thing is actually to accept, right? It's really hard to accept, you know what, I can't do anything about this. But to accept something, you go back to breathing. You go, nothing I can do about that. B is breathing, E is exercise, A is awareness to accept or adapt, and T is to take time. I enjoy a cup of coffee every morning. For about 10 minutes, I'll just enjoy my cup of coffee. Caroline, being very different to me, of course prefers tea, but she will have a cup of tea and enjoy it every morning. You stop everything that you're doing, you stop your schedules just to have this little window of time when you don't have to be anywhere, there are no demands on your time. Our society has demands on your time. Good grief, I'm a doctor, okay, I've got appointments at 4 o'clock, 4.30, 5 o'clock, and on and on it goes. And people get upset if you're late. That's fair enough, that's scheduling. But when I'm on a holiday, I get lots of time and it doesn't matter. If I'm late, it doesn't matter if I'm early. Good grief. People turn up to lectures 15, 20, 30 minutes early. Why? Because you can take time. And it's relaxing. It's wonderful. So I want to leave you with how this sounds like musically. With a piece of music that I think you'll all know. It's by the Beatles.
play it through the first time, it's going to be like the Beatles composed it. And what I want you to notice is that you can actually tap your foot to it. There's a predictability in the time. And if any note comes too late, you go, oh, that's a mistake. That's no good. The notes had better turn up on time, just like the doctor had better be on time when he's doing his scheduling, all right? And it makes for very satisfying music. Michelle. take you on a cruise. I want to take you to New Caledonia, to Numea, where we stayed overnight. And there's a casino in uh, New Caledonia, and Caroline and I decided to have some dinner and some dancing there. But there was a piano player who played Michel. But what he did was he didn't keep time. His time was all over the place. He destroyed time. So it didn't matter if notes turned up on time or if they turned up late. And what happened is you end up with this freedom of just sinking into the music and going, ah. Oh. And you just give yourself to the melody to see what the music is doing when you take time, even destroy time. Can't tap your foot to this one. yourself in front of a fire with your favorite drink and your favorite person. Thank you.
Thank you. Sunsets are another timeless place. Rather than going, oh, 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 we've got to be here at this time. No, I'm here for the sunset. I don't know how long the sunset's going to take. I don't know what colours are going to come up. Or if you make new friends and you're sitting and just having a really comfortable conversation. These are the things that get us to take time away from the busy schedule that our world has given us. And it becomes one of the ways of beating anxiety to train your anxiety monkey. B for breathing, E for exercise, A to be aware of how to adapt or what to accept, and T to take time. Thank you for listening today. So if you have any questions for Christian on anxiety, I will get my exercise. Yes. Caroline goes to E for beat anxiety. The exercise brings anxiety levels down in Caroline. Does worry even exist? Okay, so it's a, it's a very good question. So uh, worry uh, is actually the essence of one particular mental illness called general anxiety disorder. Uh, worry does exist in that we have a label for it, but worry actually is anxiety over things that may happen and 99% of the time do not. So uh, worry in a way encapsulates what anxiety is all about in that it's within our head and it becomes our response to a thought rather than actuality. And so one of the things that meditation techniques do is bring you into a here and now state where you go, Christian, what sort of worries do you actually have? You may have a worry in a couple of weeks' time. You may have a worry about things that have happened in the past. But right now, you are here and you are safe. So in that sense, worry doesn't even exist. Thank you for your question. Okay, so the question is, is there any correlation between anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder? And up until about seven years ago, the textbook answer was yes, obsessive compulsive disorder is a certain type of anxiety. And uh, that makes sense because when people have obsessions uh, like um, uh, I will die if I step on the cracks so I only go on the squares, uh, that becomes obsessive compulsive uh, disorder. However, in the last couple of years, the research has shown that there's a different quality about obsessive compulsive disorder. And psychiatrists have always known this because you can get obsessive compulsive disorder after you've had a bacterial illness, particularly strep throat. And there are some things that are very biological about obsessive compulsive disorder that doesn't exist for all other anxieties. So in our latest Bible of psychiatry, the obsessive compulsive disorders have been taken away from anxiety. We say, no, there's something different going on here, because there is. In fact, obsessive compulsive disorder is the only disorder that psychiatrists will consider surgery for. Normally, there's nothing that we can do where you get into the brain and change something, but in compul uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, there is, which again tells us there's something different going on. And, uh, Psychiatry does not understand its illnesses, let's say, as heart specialists do. So there's a lot of research still going on in that area. But obsessive and compulsive disorder is actually different from, let's say, generalized anxiety disorder. Thank you for your question. A situation where somebody's led a fairly 
full life. Yes. Getting their retirement, not feeling all that well, seeing their doctor to be told, you've about six months to live, get your affairs in order. Yes. Anxiety pops up. Yes. And all sorts of issues around that. How do you cope? Okay. Okay. And okay. I've heard your bits and pieces, but one way of coping is meditation. Yes. Visualization. Yes. Affirmation. Yes. Okay, uh, thank you for your question. Uh, okay, so right in that question is the difference between fear and anxiety. Because somebody who is facing that is facing something that's real. This is not something that they're making up. This is something that is actually happening. So firstly, it's not an anxious state, it's a, it's a fearful state. And so you can use breathing, exercise, awareness and taking time to bring the level of fear down, but you're still not going to change anything and you've got these thoughts going through your mind, oh my gosh, I've got to get my affairs in order, what do I do? The recent scientific study shows a vast benefit for, this is 20 years of research, um, for gratitude. Because what gratitude does is it takes your focus away from what's going wrong to what's going right. Okay, now somebody who let's say gets that at a young age like 65 you've got about six months okay oh my gosh this is terrible why me this shouldn't happen uh, I, I, I thought I'd have another 20 years at least it's all been taken away from me and that will make those six months horrible whereas with gratitude you go okay this is a bad situation right uh, I've got to face the fact that it's coming to the end but you know what I've had 65 years. I've had a partner who's loved me. I've had children. I've had the opportunity to contribute to society. And I still have six months. Thank goodness I know, because now I can put my affairs in order. Now I can do a few things that have meaning to me. Okay? And it's not actually just a game that we play with the brain. Okay? It will focus you away from what you can't change to what you do have under control. So in a sense, it's, it's like the A, do I have to adapt or do I have to accept? Whoops, this I have to accept. But what can I do? And when you do that, the last six months will become more meaningful. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that's easy to do. It's still very difficult to do. But thank you very much for your question. Thank you very much, everybody. So much to take in. So try and rest and digest. My favorite take home from this is that you can be judged for what you do, but not who you are. I share it often with my students. It really helps them get over their anxiety. Hope it helped you too. If you like these podcasts, you can subscribe and recommend them to others. Take care, breathe, exercise, accept, and find some margin in your lives. See you next time.